I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Edmund Waldstein, trying to avoid giant feral hamsters in the Great Concavity. Oh. <laughs> yeah, beauty. Love it. Edmund, that's awesome. Yeah. Welcome to Canada. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for inviting me. This is really cool. Yeah. I'm glad that Anytime. we're not in the real Great Concavity because... Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'd all be in great peril, I think. Yeah. Uh, toxic Those, peril and whatnot. Those <laughs> huge fans. Yeah. Right. So, Edmund, thank you so much for coming on. You are on episode 16 of The Great Concavity, and you're joining us all the way from Austria. So thank you for coming all this way to be on with us today yeah that's right it's really it's really cool that we can do this uh we had a little technical difficulties at the start but now we're going yeah it seems to it seems to happen almost every time i would say probably 90 percent of the episodes we have some kind of snag start a bit late but we always get her in the end eh, matt i hope so (laughs) (laughs) awesome so edmund you are a cistercian monk why don't you give us a little bit of uh, a background of what that entails exactly sure and then we can get into how you got to wallace and and how those two things intersect okay sure so the cistercians are uh an order in the catholic church they were started um in france in sort of end of the 10th century and the beginning of the 11th century and the idea was uh to return to the original idea of monasticism the original monks who in early Christianity went out into the desert to be alone, to be free of distractions and so on. Um, the One of the big figures in the early history of the Cistercians was St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who uh, was a very charismatic leader and right. so on. And my monastery was actually founded during his lifetime, although he never came to my mm-hmm. monastery. It's My monastery is called Heiligenkreuz, uh, mm-hmm. and it's here in Austria. We were founded in 1133, um, so you're fairly new, right? Yeah, fairly new as monasteries go. <laughs> but of course, there have been a lot of developments uh, in our way of life, uh, as is hardly avoidable, uh, mm-hmm. down the centuries. So there are now actually two Cistercian orders. Uh, the one that's more known probably in North America is the so-called Cistercians of the Strict Observance, or Trappists. Thomas Merton mm. was a Trappist. He's kind of one of the right. better-known Cistercian figures in America. Um, right. Whereas my, my uh, Cistercian order the, is called the, the Common Observance, and uh, we have more interaction with the outside world. So Trappists mm. would, would probably not be doing podcasts on David Foster Wallace. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but they might be making beer? <laughs> they might perhaps? be making beer, yeah. The Trappists do, do make a lot of beer, yeah. They're pretty well known for that, for their ales. That's awesome. Indeed, yes. (laughs) That's great. Well, thanks for that background. Uh, Edmund, you and I met in Paris at the Infinite Wallace Conference in 2014. And uh, I was very excited to talk to you because I was just sort of starting my thesis on Infinite Jest and its sort of dialogue with soteriology in Christianity. And uh, to see you there in your full uh, monastic robes and garb and everything and talk to you about that was really awesome and fascinating um so i think we we're gonna have a lot to talk about today yeah definitely i hope that uh, you'll tell us a little bit about your thesis too and what you've yeah discovered so 
Yeah, so actually a really exciting thing is I just submitted it to my supervisors today, like the final copy. Wow, congratulations. Uh, all, all put together, table of contents, acknowledgements, all that stuff. So it's uh, it's going to be out there in the world pretty soon, and I'm set to defend it next month. And so I'm feeling a, a pretty great uh, relief off my I, shoulders today. I imagine, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's been like yeah, a three-year really cool. project, so pretty psyched about that. That's fantastic. Congrats, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Appreciate that, guys. <laughs> so, Edmund, uh, tell us a bit about your background in David Foster Wallace. How did you come to him? Um, and I'm really curious to hear about sort of the dialogue that you see between Wallace and uh, and faith and theology and monasticism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, how did I come to Wallace? Like, uh, like a lot of people, uh, I only heard about him when he died. I'm one of those people right. that okay, wasn't, yeah. wasn't uh, unlike Matt, who was following him from the start, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people who, who heard about him reading an obituary, actually, in a, oh, uh, yeah. a blog on a magazine called First Things, which is kind of a highbrow Christian magazine mm. in the U.S. And yeah. uh, they posted on his death, and they had a little quote there from his Kenyan College speech, mm. And I was interested uh, in him, so I, I Googled him. And the first thing I read was actually uh, the essay on usage and on uh, prescriptivism mm. and uh, descriptivism <laughs> and so on. And I was utterly enchanted by that. And part mm. of the reason was I had, uh, this was two years after I'd moved back to Austria. So for a little background, I, um, my father's Austrian, my mother's American. And we kind of moved back and forth a few times when I was growing up. But I spent actually most of, uh, most of the time when I was growing up, we were in the U.S. Um, right. But then after, uh, after finishing college, I entered the monastery here in Austria. And two years after uh, moving here was when I discovered Wallace. And mm. I was kind of missing English because... My, English is really my mother tongue. My mother is, is American. And German, uh, I'm pretty fluent in German, but it's not, it's not quite the same uh, as English. And I was kind of missing, especially sort of American English. And uh, <laughs> Wallace is, captures that just so perfectly, the, the way Americans speak. And, and sort of <laughs> uh, not just captures it, but also sort of perfects it and, and sort of brings out the beauties in, in the sort of the rhythm of American English. And that's, that's mm -hmm. what really enchanted me about him initially. Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. It's funny in our episode with uh, Josh Royland's class, we talked about how that essay is kind of a dividing line <laughs> and that some people that's uh, a big turnoff to them. And for others, it's like a gateway drug that they you know, <laughs> really, that's how they get into walls. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you've written a lot about Wallace and um, theology and religion, and, and you know we're quick to get on that because it's, yeah. it seems to be a topic we come back to a lot and interesting. And just earlier today, in fact, I was talking with a friend who asked me a question, and I'm going to ask it of you, and that is, how would you describe Wallace's religion? Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a hard question. I would. It, that is a that's a spicy one. <laughs> yeah, we don't mess around. We get right to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, um, I would. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm not going to have a very good answer to this because I think that <laughs> Wallace is someone who's he's very interested in religion and in sort of religious questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but he seems to me to be someone who's always kind of on the threshold, who's never sort of uh, really become part of a religion, but is sort of, he's always, because he has this very skeptical side as well, uh, mm-hmm. so that when he's writing about religion, you can see a great interest in, uh, in sort of these ultimate questions that religion deals with. Um, but there's, there's always a sense also that he's kind of an outsider looking uh, at religion from a, a kind of an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd agree like with as that. As a journalist but, almost or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you classify him ultimately as Christian or what, <laughs> what labels do you think apply or don't apply or why? Well, um, I would, I would almost, I would almost classify him as an agnostic, but, uh, but an agnostic who's very engaged in, in kind of a religious search. So not, I mean, not an ag- agnostic is probably the wrong word. It, it's not, he, it's not that he thinks it's, uh, that it's impossible to know, uh, any truth in, in these kinds of questions. But um, he's someone who is, who is working through kind of religious questions very, uh, very much engaged in, in what they mean for, for human life and so on. But someone who, who I, wouldn't, I wouldn't classify him as being religious in kind of uh, the strict, well, what is the strict sense? Maybe it's, <laughs> I mean, religion is, religion is kind of a vague term uh, in itself. Yeah. I mean, what, what counts as religion? That's one of the difficulties, um, that you have when, when trying to classify him. Um, yeah. but he's definitely, I think he's definitely someone who takes religious questions very seriously and really thinks about them and really tries to live also some aspects of religion, but that he kind of chooses what, what works for him. I mean, you, there, there's the whole, uh, um, Alcoholics Anonymous thing that he right. uses with with the higher power, which is which in itself is a very vague kind of uh, yeah. religious um, practice. But he uses, I think, he uses the elements that he finds are 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 helpful to his life. But uh, he's not religious uh, the way I am, like as a Cistercian monk. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> religious so his kind religion of is sense. kind of like more pragmatic, you would say, like he. He takes what is useful from each tradition and applies it in a way that uh, makes sense in his life. Yeah, he does. But yeah, that's definitely true. But it's also uh, it's also a, an inquiry with him. It's not just uh, it's not just pragmatism. Yeah. This works, mm-hmm. so I do it. Um, right. But it's also <laughs> it's kind of the Gately approach, right? Right. <laughs> I don't know how this works, but it does. And yeah, so it works. So do. doing it. Yeah. But if, with Wallace, there's always he's a very questioning kind of uh, thinker. And so it's all, there's always, he's always questioning religion and, and thinking about the questions that it, that it brings up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my thesis, I dealt quite a bit with uh, an essay by Michael O'Connell and Matt, you put me onto this, the, uh, your religion is uh, self and sentiment. Your temple is self and sentiment. Yeah. And in it, he makes the claim that it makes sense to think of Wallace as a Christian writer. 
uh, specifically a Catholic writer, and then he and then he talks about the ways in which Wallace intersects with Flannery O'Connor, another uh, Walker Percy, Walker, Walker Percy, Percy another, yeah, another famous uh, Catholic authors. And so, I, I wonder about that claim. That I, I think it makes sense to think of Wallace as writing in a with very Christian implications or overtones, mm-hmm. but to say exclusively that he is a Christian writer. I would probably, uh, you know, shy away from that a little bit because it's pretty clear, like we talked last week to uh, our guest, that there's a lot of Buddhism in Wallace's work too, right? And there's a lot yeah. of other faith traditions that that pop up. And so to exclusively say Wallace is a Christian writer, I would I would maybe say that's a bit extreme. And I don't think that's what Michael O'Connell's exactly saying. He's saying it makes sense to think of him in this context which I would agree with. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a tricky question to, to pin down where he lands. Right. Yeah, that's true. I like, I like that paper by um, Michael O'Connell. He sent that to me mm-hmm. as well. I thought it was a really yeah, good great. paper, but um, yeah, I agree with you that it's, you have to know exactly what you mean. If you say he's a Christian writer or he's a Buddhist <laughs> writer uh, Yeah. in a sense. Yeah. He's using elements of Christianity and Buddhism and so on. But um yeah, not in the same sense that I would say I'm a Catholic priest, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm go- I'm going to disagree and try to take a different angle on okay. this. Okay, do it. And, uh, so on your blog, you had recently posted this thing, which I'm going to plug your blog because I think it's fantastic. Oh, uh, thanks. And uh, it's um, San Crucensis. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. San Crucensis. But, yeah, that's San com, and, and we'll link to it on the site when we post this episode. But um. On there, you had a thing from Derrida about how there's nothing outside the text and this kind of funny thing about scholars disagreeing with whether or not Derrida actually wrote that. Yeah, and he yeah, clearly yeah. did. <laughs> uh, but there, so there's this idea that you can judge Wallace as a writer just looking at the text, but we just can't help ourselves to look outside of the text and look at his yeah. own life and beliefs and really you know, expand the idea of the text to include things like you know, maybe marginalia comments that he wrote. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think my own belief is that, yes, he did believe in a higher power through AA. And yes, he did, I think, in the Kenyan speech, make his own argument for believing in some kind of personal yeah. God. God. Yeah. And that there's some, you know, notes of things that he wrote around that time kind of, uh, trashing agnosticism, like yeah. kind of saying that you know it's too, too flabby. And I think, if, <laughs> if anything, he's he's a moral writer yeah. who is concerned with some you know how should a person live. Yes, and and I think that 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 concern puts him in line with maybe a new sort of religion that there's just frankly not a lot of scholarship in the contemporary literature world. Um. So I think, you know, if you're a cool writer and you're out there on book tours, the last thing you want is someone to say, hey, aren't you a Christian? You go to church. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's that's damning for your reputation. (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't fly. I mean, try being like Kurt Cobain and being like, oh, he's a really cool guy, but he's super into this Jesus thing. Right. That doesn't really fit with his image. Well, Dylan did it. Well, in the eighties for a bit, <laughs> excoriated for doing it too. Yeah, yeah, totally. And no, I mean, yeah. no one listens to that stuff anymore. <laughs> Slow drinking. There's a great kind of deflecting answer that Wallace gives 
you've probably listened to that reading of uh, the view from Mrs. Thompson's that he gave at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. And in the Q&A, um, which this, luckily they recorded the Q&A, you can listen to it, it's pretty great. Uh, some guy asks him, um, you know, what, what role God and religion play in your life and work? And, yeah, uh, I remember this. Yeah. And, and he, initially he answers by saying, well, um, let's, uh, l- how about you tell me first what role religion well, plays in your yeah. life and work, right? So I can have some context <laughs> that I can know how to, how to, uh, yeah, like what, what kind what of do you response want to hear I can give here? you. <laughs> well, what, yeah. maybe not. I mean, that would be kind of a cynical take on it, but it seemed more sure. like, uh, <laughs> Because depending on where someone's coming from uh, in approaching religion, uh, mm-hmm. the way you're going to respond is, is should, you know, be, they should be able to understand what you say, as it were. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, you know, one of the more interesting parts, though, is that how he, you know, positioned his beliefs in this public sphere. Like, he did have to operate in this sphere, but he was a very private person. And he sort of makes that makes that argument in the, the Kenyan speech that, you know, you, you're the one that gets to decide how you're going to navigate the world. Right. And that's sort of his defense for it being a really personal thing. But I think even in his writing, it's evidenced, um, you know, in, in a lot of places in the Pale King. And I think he was trying to do something more interesting there uh, as a way for him to grow out of some of his, like, spiritual adolescence. Yeah. And that... I'm really interested in that you know, trajectory that he was on because he started out really not being concerned with any of this. Yeah, you know, it's really not until Infinite Jest that we get uh, a really moral tale from him. Yeah, you know, and something really about what it means to be a responsible adult. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's hard to write about when you're 28 or 25 or something. <laughs> No, no offense to our 25-year-old listeners. <laughs> right. Final wisdom. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely true. That's something I've been working on. I've been working on a dissertation for far too long, but that's, I'm hoping to finish it by Christmas now. Uh, oh, nice. But what it's about is um, it's kind of bringing Wallace into dialogue, as it were, with, with theological ethics. Hmm. The question that I started with was how do ethics and religion relate? What I mean, there are many different ways in which uh, they could relate, but why is it that uh, questions about what does it mean to live or a good human life, mm-hmm. a meaningful human life, often uh, are connected to religious questions? And looking at that uh, specifically in Wallace, where mm-hmm. um, again and again in his work, the question of uh, living a halfway non-miserable, uh, <laughs> meaningful human life uh, is connected to some kind of religious uh, question. Um, so in your dissertation, are you looking at, at like the whole swath of Wallace's work in that context? Are you looking at a few particular pieces, or how does that look? Yeah, I'm looking at the whole swath of his work. Yeah. I have basically the dissertation is... Uh, has two parts and the the first part um which is directly on wallace also has two parts Mm -hmm. and the first part of the first part 
is, <laughs> is, uh, is about kind of the, the, dif- the difficulties that he shows for um, living a human life. And lone- look at loneliness there and addiction, distraction, all these things. Things that are on the one hand, they're kind of uh, perennial human problems. And on the other hand, Wallace shows how aspects of our times uh, sort of aggravate these problems. Hmm. Um, so distraction, for example, there's, uh, there's, there's some wonderful texts in The Pale King about how the so-called information age is not about information. It's about distracting us from some kind of deep level pain that is always there and that we're always fleeing from. Hmm. Or deep level boredom or something too. Could be an idea there. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the boredom, the reason why boredom is a problem is because it lets us feel that sort of deeper <laughs> problem. Right. When there's nothing distracting us, then this kind of uh, um, loneliness, alienation uh, that's sort of in the deep level in, mm-hmm. in human life can be felt. Right. And our impulse is to feel that as little as possible. Exactly. You know, and yeah. never, never to face the question of what that right. is and what it means for our life. I wanted to ask you as well about that paper you recently posted that you wrote for the Political Demonology Conference. Uh-huh. Yeah. And could you give us a, a little you know, brief summary of, of what you wrote on there and how that sort of ties in? Sure. This is a paper comparing Wallace to... Uh, a philosopher called Charles de Koenig, who was uh, a so-called Thomist, that is a follower of Thomas Aquinas. And he actually worked in Canada, uh, uh, in Quebec. Yeah, he was, he was from Belgium, but he taught in Canada. Hmm. And um, he wrote a book um, in the 1940s called On the Primacy of the Common Good. And it, it was about uh, how both totalitarianism and individualism have kind of a, a common misunderstanding of the common good. And, and uh, it's a misunderstanding that causes people to, sw- to, as it were, sway like a pendulum back and forth between uh, totalitarian systems and individualist systems. So this is uh, near the end of the Second World War where um, he sees this very clearly in a lot of, uh, he was a Catholic philosopher, seeing a lot of Catholic philosophers adopting what he saw as a kind of individualism, as a reaction to the totalitarianism that they saw in the Nazis and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, principally in the Nazis. Um, and so his point was that um, a real community is formed around goods that are shared and goods that are not, not just... Uh, goods that are shared by being divided up, uh, material goods that you can, because that's only, uh, those aren't really shared in the full sense because the part of, if we're dividing up food or something or money, the money that I've got, you don't have. And uh, <laughs> the money that you have, Matt, doesn't have and so on. Right. But if there, there's sort of higher goods that he sees like peace or truth or something, that would be something that everyone can have the whole of without... Um, it being divided or being diminished. Hmm. And um, so his point was that this is uh, what neither totalitarianism nor individualism sees. 
because totalitarianism sees the good as being uh, like the good of the whole state, but considered as though the state were, a, were one person. All right. Yeah. Um, whereas individualism sees, uh, thinks the important goods are the goods that you have just for yourself. And the state should just be um, helping you to achieve those personal goods. But then there's no real community because there's no real coming together and sharing in something that everyone can have um, to the full. Hmm. Um, and this was, I was comparing this to, to Wallace, uh, especially in, in the um, conversation between Steeply and Marat in Infinite Jest, where you have Marat um, proposing uh, what comes, what seems like a kind of a totalitarian worldview, and steeply yeah. <laughs> a kind of individualist worldview. And it seems like um, the the deficiencies in one sort of lead the other lead uh, can be. Um, lead the other to appear attractive. And in that conversation, each one can, can pick out the, the weaknesses in the other's argument. So mm-hmm. um, Marat can, can tell steeply you're going to be alone, uh, a citizen of nothing, kneeling to yourself <laughs> and so on. Uh, and steeply is going to say, you know, well, doesn't this sound a lot like national socialism, what you're proposing? Yeah. <laughs> Marat. And it seems like in The Pale King, um, you get a further development of that conversation in the, in the civics chapter where there's a lot of reflection on what it would mean to have a real, um, a real c- common political life in, in the United States. And it's hard to talk about that now without thinking about Trump. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I actually just put a line in my thesis that, that talked about Trump like yesterday or two days ago. Because uh, <laughs> one of my supervisors was like, you know, Wallace's vision of future America is like becoming alarmingly accurate, especially when we think about Trump and Johnny Gentle. And I was like, yeah, totally. Yeah, That's I was just reading that. The um, Mario's uh, depiction of, of Johnny Gentle. Yeah. In, in, his, yeah, in his puppet show. And it's, uh, it's so much like Trump. It's it's this, uh, yeah, building walls and uh, cleaning things up, yeah, keeping people out, yeah, keeping people out and um, creating kind of this sense of a of a totality um, by opposition to to the other, but one that that isn't really built around um, any kind of common good that's shared. It's just built around sort of this sense of we're us, we're cool, and they're yeah. the others, they're bad. Yeah. Yeah. So at this conference, were there other people talking about Wallace or was it more of a interdisciplinary? It was an interdisciplinary thing. Um, I was the only one who talked about Wallace, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there were lots of interesting papers on all, Hmm. all different sorts of uh, things. Cool. And what, what direction do you see yourself long-term? Do you see yourself working in other contemporary literature, you know, or do you see yourself just integrating it here and there in your um, in your theological studies, or what? What is your sort of? Do you have any sort of long term plans, scholarly wise? Yeah, I think it's mostly the latter. I'll be I'll be teaching theological ethics in a seminary that my monastery runs, um, and so I'll be using some of the insights that I've got from Wallace. I'd hope uh, in my teaching, mm-hmm. uh, but my focus will be more on on um, 
classics of the theological tradition like Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and so on. But I'll definitely, I'll definitely be... In fact, I taught... This semester, I taught a, uh, an introductory course in theological ethics uh, for people who are, who are doing kind of a propedeutic year before they start the master's program. And uh, I actually brought in a little Wallace in that course. Yeah. Nice. What, spe- what specifically? Uh, specifically, um, the point that, that Marat makes in Infinite Jest and that Wallace himself makes in the Kenyan College speech um, about everyone having something that they worship, mm-hmm. which I, was, I tied that back to, um, to the Aristotelian idea of there being there has to be some final goal of life that everything that you do has to is ordered in some way to uh, a final goal. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting about the ethics in that uh, Wallace's father was a professor of ethics. And right. Indeed, that, yeah. You know, his way of getting into philosophy was really through you know analytical philosophy and Wittgenstein and kind of thumbing his nose at his father's interests and <laughs> you know traditional uh, yeah. philosophical ethics. Um, in fact, just the other day, last week, I was at the Ransom Center and saw an email exchange he had with his father where he emailed his dad and asked if there was anything good on the ethics of taxation. Oh, wow. <laughs> and his father kind of says, like, well, you could look up ethics in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And he's like, does uh, any good library have that encyclopedia? He's like, yes. And that was the extent of his help. <laughs> um, that's awesome, yeah. So there, I've, actually, I've actually just been working on, um, on Wallace's interest in, in analytic philosophy and in, in sort of math... Uh, Symbolic logic and, and sort of its connections to mathematics, um, mm. and actually I touched on this t- in the talk that I gave at the conference at Paris, in Paris. Yeah, yeah that That's that you right. were at too. Um, it's really interesting to see uh, in that the book he did on infinity. Yeah, the beginning Everything of it, um, I think, is the most interesting part, which sort of the introductory stuff. Yeah, that's the only thing I could understand. And then after about page 100, I was yeah, like, it gets wow. Like, <laughs> I get kind of lost after a while, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I did a lot of math in college, but that oh, was a while, a while back. And <laughs> I got 49.5% in math 11, and that was kind of the end of my math career. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just passed and then never went back. But what's interesting there is um, he talks about, he keeps on quoting this line from Saussure about... Hmm. Uh, a system of symbols becoming independent of the things designated. And he ties that to the development of algebra uh, in the 17th century, um, which is a really interesting argument. And it, there's a, a philosopher called Jakob Klein, who was a, a student of Husserl's and Heidegger's, who developed the same thesis in a lot more detail. Um, mm. And it's very interesting because uh, a lot of a lot of uh, problems in thinking about ethical questions and theological questions come out of conceiving of thought uh, and of language as a system of symbols like that that don't um, s- that don't say they don't name as it were uh, things but sort of stand in for things. 
So this is why I've been reading a lot of Derrida recently, because Derrida talks about this a lot. And uh, yeah. I mean, the beginning of grammatology says that mathematics, uh, mathematical language has always been kind of a challenge to what Derrida calls logocentrism, which is this mm-hmm. idea of, of the presence of what's spoken in the word. Um, and I think Derrida is, is unfair to sort of ancient uh, philosophy in that book, but it's very perceptive as a, as a critique of what comes after Descartes and, uh, mm. and these people. So you have kind of a loss of, uh, of an immediate connection between uh, reality and, and language that's there. And also you have a kind of um, a tendency to apply to reality um, properties of the symbolic systems that you're working with to, uh, with some application to reality. No, I think that's really, uh, yeah, I mean, I see that as evidenced in his work up, to, up until about Infinite Jest and that in the opening scene of Infinite Jest where Hal is unable to communicate, I, I really see that as this metaphor for writers or the author being unable to communicate with strictly words, right? And that, yeah. that he's able to make himself known to the reader, but not to the people who are in the metaphorical room there with him. And right. that, to me, is very much an extension of what he writes about in that review of uh, Wittgenstein's Mistress by Markson. Yeah. And that he, you can see his interest there is in this sort of in-case scenario of, you know, if things, if words are only symbols, what are the implications for life or for daily life? And, you know, that's a lot. Of, I mean, the broom of the system is, is based there too, but I think, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made that Wall still has that interest after Infinite Jest, but it's harder for me to see that world. I think that the interest does persist. I think he... he um he changes the way he thinks about it somewhat um, and thinks that he sees it um, as a kind of a trap. Uh, but it's one that has, to be, that has to be thought through to be overcome, I think. So... Can, can, you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, um, already in, in Broom of the System, he's, he's interested in, in the the way that the later Wittgenstein kind of uh, escapes what he sees as, as the dead end of the early Wittgenstein. So in early Wittgenstein, um, as he says in that review of, of David Markson's book, um, and we can abstract from whether this is fair to Wittgenstein or not, but uh, <laughs> the way Wallace's, Wallace's reading of early Wittgenstein is that... Uh, because Wittgenstein conceives of, of language as this sort of mathematical symbolic system, it empties the world of anything, any properties that such a system of symbols doesn't have. So any kind of ethical values or um, uh, any kind of transcendence or anything is emptied out of the world. And then uh, he sees Wittgenstein as thinking as running into a problem that he doesn't really deal with in the Tractatus, namely that there's no way of, um, of having reference given that, that 
system that he set up in the Tractatus. So in the Tractatus, Wittgenstein is still thinking of, you can match these atomic statements to atomic facts in the world through experimentation or something. But given that he's conceived of all language as a system of symbols, uh, which is in some way independent of what's designated, there's no way of standing outside of that and matching the system to any other reality. You're always in, trapped in this uh, symbol world. And um, that's what, that seems to be Wallace's reading of Derrida as well, of this nothing outside the text, that there's no way of, of getting out of uh, this system of symbols and matching it to something else. But then Wallace's reading of the later Wittgenstein is that the way to escape that is not to return to um, a, a different idea of language, an, an earlier idea of language, but rather to see that what makes uh, such a system possible in the first place is uh, its use in, uh, in a kind of a community. So you need, so the, the whole thing about there being no private language in the investigations uh, is, shows that language is used um, in, a common, in a shared context between different persons. And so I think part of what he does in his later work is, is, tr is try to play a, a language game in the Wittgensteinian sense to set up a shared context uh, with the reader where, there's, uh, where there can be um, a community between the author and the reader. Hmm. So I think that the concern, it's not as front uh, and center in his later work, but I think it's still there. And it has... And part of the, some of the stylistic things he does in his later work, I think, have, have to do with that. Like author here in Pale King, would that be an example of that? That would be an example of that, yeah. This, these kind of playful elements. Um, yeah, cool. Well, I feel like I'm a bit out of my depth with some of this uh, technical philosophy <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, it sounds great. <laughs> it sounds like you've done your... your the legwork here. Sorry, I'm out of my depth when it comes to trying to change the <laughs> settings on Google Hangouts or Skype. <laughs> I apologize for the audio quality of everything I've ever been associated with. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, We're not known for our audio quality around here at the Great Concavity. Apologize. We, if we can get like a technical sound technician to you know who's who's out there and is a fan and wants to help, wants us. to like help us, please. Contact us, <laughs> concavityshow at gmail.com. <laughs> We're struggling, uh, struggling noobs here. Well, Edmund, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I, before we wrap up, I want to ask if there's any, um, any points that you wanted to make when we started out here or any kind of final thoughts you want to leave us with about you know, stuff that you have learned about Wallace in your studies and investigations. Well, one thing uh, that I wanted to say that sort of goes back to um, your initial question, Dave, mm -hmm. is that some of the parallels I've seen between the monastic tradition and uh, Wallace's work, especially in The Pale King. Yeah, So sure. um, you have in The Pale King that idea of that if you, if you get rid of distractions and sort of endure the boredom of not having anything to distract you and, uh, and sort of ride through that and feel sort of that um, deeper pain that you've always been fleeing. 
in your life, that on the other side of that, there's, uh, there's some kind of transcendence. And this is, this is a big theme in the whole monastic tradition. Um, the Cistercians, the early Cistercians especially, put a lot of emphasis on this idea of going out into the desert and of, of separating oneself from distraction. Uh, and so if you look at Cistercian architecture, you, you guys need to come visit me sometime. I'll give you a tour, of, to. tour of our monastery. Uh, the the early stuff, um, you, you can see different styles, different parts of the monastery were built at different times. And the earliest things are very plain. They're very austere. Hmm. You've got very little ornamentation. Uh, St. Bernard was against a lot of... And, and what it has to do with is this idea of uh, getting away from all distraction um, so that you can feel uh, this, this deep level pain, which for the Cistercians... Uh, they identify with, with original sin, which uh, right. is this kind of estrangement from God. Augustine takes it from scripture, but develops it a lot. It's this idea mm. that there's this kind of uh, mankind um, was, is supposed to be in communion with God, but he's somehow, the, the communication's been broke off, broken off. Uh, yeah. And it's mankind's like fault. Like a Skype call. Yeah, like a Skype like call. Like our Skype exactly. call four times today. <laughs> and there's this kind of pain of, of exile or estrangement or alienation that homelessness, uh, kind of, yeah. yeah, that everyone is sort of fleeing from in the distractions of uh, life, and that mm-hmm. if you can turn those distractions off and really feel the pain, then uh, you can transcend it and and reestablish a mm-hmm. connection with God. So um, mm-hmm. that, that's. One thing that I've been working a lot on that that uh, element in the Pale King and comparing it to uh, the hmm, theological tradition. Yeah. So, like some theological traditions would say, would put a lot of emphasis on on aesthetics and beauty and art and music and and poetry and those things having the capacity for us from a fallen place to find some kind of communion with the trans with transcendence or with God. So that's kind of a, a pretty stark ju- juxtaposition between those two ideas, right? Like one is totally repudiate all that kind of stuff, and then and that's how you get to it, versus communing with you know culture and and art and and beauty. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting that's a really interesting point. There's a there's actually a a uh, debate between Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, the Cistercian uh, mm-hmm. abbot, and a Benedictine abbot from Cluny, which was famous for its glorious architecture and its mm. sculptures and all these other things, about that very question. Um, and they go back and forth and so on. But it's interesting in Bernard, although he was in, his, in visual arts, he was very austere and he, he, he tried to have as, as little ornamentation as possible. And even in music, he simplified the, the chants for the liturgy. Mm. But if you look at his, at his prose style, it's uh, it's really uh, extremely elaborate work of mm. art with tons of imagery and uh, wordplay and uh, mm. all these things. So it seems like there's some way of of bringing both together that you can have both uh, on the one hand not distracting yourself with a thousand uh, images so that you can mm-hmm. hear the silence as it were, but then yeah. on the other hand also consciously. Uh, Taking certain elements that are that are beautiful uh, and using that also as a as a means mm-hmm. to 
yeah. approaching the transcendent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a, there is a possible synthesis between those two ideas. Yeah. How do you see Wallace engaging with that question? Because in the Pale King, you've got the very monastic kind of approach, and then also there are, are other places where there's total maximalism and and you know his wordplay is just I mean it's phenomenal everywhere. But how do you see that playing out in in the body of Wallace's work? Yeah, I think there's a similar part of well, I think he does the maximalism does a, a couple different things. So some of it is some of it is very beautiful, uh, but a lot of it is is kind of depicting um, the the horror and the brokenness of, <laughs> of yeah. human existence, the nightmare of consciousness and so on. Totally. Uh, so um, part of it is sort of setting up the problem that, that then has to be dealt with mm-hmm. uh, in some way. And that yeah. the, the Pell King's thing about boredom is, is one way of, of dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's, I mean, again, yeah, some, some of it, some of his work is just really, really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, uh, sort of follow up to that. Do you see much redemption in Wallace's work? You know, like thinking from a sort of a Christian worldview, Catholic worldview, where redemption is a real and present reality. Um, do you see that playing out, and in how so in Wallace's work? Because this is sort of the question that I was thinking about. Yeah, I would be interested. Guess. Maybe yeah. you could say something about that because okay. I definitely <laughs> see it's a, it's a it's a big question. I mean, yeah. it's something that he's working in a way. Uh, Almost everything he writes, especially in, in beginning with Infinite Jest, is yeah. is about trying to find some kind of redemption. But I would I would love to hear what what you've yeah. discovered in your work. So my take on Infinite Jest, and originally I kind of set out to do like a project on the whole body of Wallace's work, and then uh-huh. my supervisor was like, "This is a master's thesis. Like, pick one of those yeah. eighteen yeah. texts that you mentioned, and just deal with that." And so I ended up at 80 pages in my master's thesis. I think it was supposed to be like 65 max, you know, Excellent, <laughs> but I have yeah. 80. So, <laughs> so I'm, I kind of say that infinite jest demonstrates or engages a conversation with, the, with a Christian worldview in that it presents humanity as profoundly fallen, yeah. you know, pain, suffering, as uh, Christoph said, uh, infinite jest is an encyclopedia of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's obviously pretty clear. Uh, but then at the same time, I think that, infinite jest presents fallen humanity as as intrinsically and infinitely valuable right so the characters matter uh their human existence matters the moral choices that they make matter um and so there's kind of a a tension between fallenness but yet having value you know the image of god the imago dei um and then how do we come out from that what is kind of the salvation or redemption narrative mm-hmm. that can bring back some kind of communion with with the divine or with god and so i i pres- i set up my thesis in sort of three chapters where i talk about hal then gately then mario in three chapters arguing that those characters sort of show a, a, a spectrum of salvation states each sort of representing those three things of fallenness value uh, and redemption. So with Hal, I kind of, my thesis is that, you know, his final scene in the opening of the novel is that he kind of fails at salvation. He's ultimately sort of detached, alienated, unredeemed. Um, and so he kind of embodies that aspect of, of the view. And then Gately, uh, there's kind of an exchange of grace with Gately where he's deeply fallen. He's got a very sordid background, 
but then he comes to a place of redemption and demonstrates that through sacrifice for Randy Lenz and through his acts of service and all that kind of stuff. Um, so deeply fallen yet redeemed. And then I talk about Mario in kind of like a figuratively Christological way. And I think, I don't think it's a perfect analogy. And I talk about like Mario obviously doesn't have 12 disciples and he didn't die on a cross <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, nothing like that. But I think there are elements of Mario's character that seem deeply, um, that, that bear a likeness to Christ. And so, yeah. um, like some writers have talked about, like Timothy Jacobs talks about the Barry Loach scene with Mario, where Mario is a, is a kind of saint. And so I kind of just take that further. That's sort of my stepping stone. I, I say, I might even argue that Mario is, is beyond just saintly. He actually embodies um, grace and mercy and uh, all of these kinds of, of things. Um, and, and again, the analogy is not perfect, but there are elements to Mario's character that I think sort of point to a figurative Christological reading. Uh, I talk about his physical uh, his deformities and things like that as well in relation to like the, the eternal wounds of Christ. And so Mario's in, in the, the ETA, which is full of like these perfectly athletic bodies and yet his is, is disfigured. And so that's kind of analogous to, oh, can I interrupt you there, Dave? There's a, yeah. a thing. I don't remember if it's in the final draft of the pale King or not, but in an mm -hmm. earlier draft, there's a mention about some graffiti on the wall and oh, yeah? the graffiti says, if God loves us, why are we so ugly? <laughs> nice. wow. I don't know if that's yeah, still yeah. in there, but I, you know, I think overall yeah. in his work, it's pretty dark and it's pretty bleak, and there's not yeah. a lot of way out. And yeah. that uh, I was also looking at a letter last week he wrote to Michael Peach when he turned in the final manuscript for brief interviews, and he said, "Well, you know, this is pretty dark collection. There's not too many light-hearted pieces in it." Yeah, and truly. He's, he apologizes for that and says it's weird because his mood has been pretty good in those years when he was writing that. Right, yeah. I would say Oblivion is, is profoundly bleak as well on the whole. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I would say, what, like we've talked about recently, Matt, like Wallace's work tends towards the pain spectrum of that whole equation rather than the lightness and, and the salvation or redemption. But I think there are glimmers of it. Well, just places, that, you know, know that we, we've also talked about literature is not usually found in a lot of lighthearted moments. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> like it wouldn't be worth reading if it was essentially, right? Some suffering in it, right? Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it, one, one of the things I really love about Wallace is how seriously he takes sort of the difficulty of human ex existence. Yeah. And how he doesn't blink at, you know, the darkness that that really um, can be found. Yeah, he does yeah. certainly does not shy away from that. Yeah. He confronts it quite radically, <laughs> I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think what he says, I mean, to go back to that point about the Pale King, what he says about this sort of tendency to try to block that out um, is really true, and that there's really something valuable to uh, to not blocking out, to confronting it, and that and that's the only way to then lead to, uh, as you were saying, some kind of hope of redemption, is mm -hmm. if you really face um, the seriousness of the problem, as it were. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think for him, the salvation or redemption thing, in, you know, in his overall work or philosophy, has something to do with freedom, and yeah. that 
you know, moral agency and whatnot. And he comes, there's a line in Infinite Jest where he's talking about AA, and it, it's a great passage, and it ends with like, and then they've got you, and then you're free. Mm. Like, once yeah. you fully submit your yeah. will and your ego, then you're free. And that's yeah. in the Kenyan speech, too. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a very Christian ethic, right? Like the like the truth will set you free, but only when it's finished with you, like Lyle says. Um, and yes, like that's I'd say like as part of like a New Testament ethos, submission of of us, you know, the spider bitten will, and the coming in kind of is is quite analogous to to redemption in an, in a Christian model, dying to self, that kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's been great talking with you, and we will yeah, definitely link awesome. to your site, and we encourage um, other people to go and read some of these papers that we've talked about and hit you on Twitter. Do you want to tell us your Twitter name? Yeah, it's at San Crescensis, which is the same as the, same as the site, the name. That name, is, it's the adjectival version of the name of my monastery. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Just to explain that version of that, yeah. <laughs> Is that <laughs> like... Uh, do you guys know the movie Rushmore by Wes Anderson? Yeah. I do, yeah. Yeah, when Max Fisher, uh, he asks Magnus, you know, he's like, why don't you piss off Fisher? You expletive, expletive, expletive. Is that Latin? That's, uh, <laughs> that's my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Awesome. And uh, Edmund, if people want to check out some of your academic writing, where, where's the best place they can go to see some of what you've written on Wallace? I'm on academia.edu. Uh, so if you search Edmund Waldstein, you should be able to find me there. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. And what are, what are your sort of your plans for future publications? I know you've got your dissertation coming to a close. Um, any other future projects related to Wallace on the horizon that you've got kind of in the hopper? Uh, not in the hopper, but we'll see. Uh, maybe I'll I'll take some parts of my dissertation and develop them in yeah. various directions. So very cool. I'd li- I would definitely like to do something on the uh, on this whole idea of of symbolic systems that I was talking about and mm-hmm. how that relates to to freedom and so on. Yeah, um, cool. And then maybe something on the distraction, uh, getting away from distraction, feeling the inner pain. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome and, uh, develop. cool that's great and do you have any plans to hit up any of the future Wallace conferences in North America like, oh, uh, I'd, like in I'd Illinois like to. Or... I'd like to it hasn't worked out so far yeah. uh, but it was the, the one in Paris was so much fun oh, uh, it was to, to it was heavenly such a dream meet a lot of, of people whose, whose work I'd read yeah uh, totally to see them in the flash not just on the page that was really cool yeah that was yeah. great and they fed us so well there too yeah champagne and hors d'oeuvres like (laughs) i think i paid five euros 15 euros for that conference and it was three days and they were just giving us food and and champagne the whole time it was like how is this possible (laughs) this would never happen in north america (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's uh it's a different uh system of allocating resources in that's France. right it's, you know state yeah. university they got this <laughs> totally <laughs> different commitments well maybe we'll cross our fingers for another paris conference maybe one yeah. day <laughs> edmund thank you yeah, so much for coming on the great concavity it's been awesome talking to you man really appreciate your, your thank insights. you so much for having me it's been really a lot of fun really enjoyed yeah. it. and our pleasure 
Yeah, and, great uh, to sort of meet you, yeah, Matt. Nice as meet, you. Where meet you over Yeah, yeah. Google. We got the, we got the video funny going for this, yeah. so that's good. <laughs> awesome. Really well, cool. if you if you want to come hit us up on Twitter, we are at Concavity Show. We're also on the Instagram at uh, also Concavity Show, and we love hanging out with you guys. We love hearing from you. Uh, feel free to contact us. We we just take a great amount of pleasure in uh, in discoursing with you guys on all the social media things. Uh, as always, we want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art, and we want to thank the band Parquet Courts for their song Instant Disassembly. Uh, they're actually playing in Vancouver in, I think, July, so I might see if I can get over there and check them out and say hello from the Great Concavity to those guys, but see how it goes. <laughs> Any last thoughts, Matt? Until next Miss anything? time. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening. check the score on the England game in the meantime <laughs> I don't know if you're a soccer fan yeah I am <laughs>